to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Get ready for another interesting episode ahead. Today, I feel like a matchmaker. I'm matching two people, not in marriage, but in their life history. I have two individual men around the same age, both retired, who live in different parts of the United States, but are joined by a common story. They are both fathers to adult children who struggle with addiction. They both have suffered and strained relationships that come with the disease of addiction. And after many years of pain, they are finally in a good place. Both these fathers requested to stay anonymous because they did not want to rock the boat with the good relationship that they have with their children. And yet they wanted to speak out with a question and answers in order to help other parents who are in the same difficult situation. One man is our listener, and we will hear his question. The other man is our expert, who's also a physician, who we will call Dr. E. These men do not know each other, although I know both of them, and I can tell you that they both have a passion on the issue of drugs and addiction, and they use their different professional skills in their advocacy for a united cause. Let's hear from our father who has a question. Hi, Dr. Lev. If you don't mind, I'll keep my name anonymous. I'm 65 years old. I live in San Diego, South Bay, and I am retired. Uh, First, I wanna thank you for your advocacy. I wonder if you can share experiences from family members whose adult children struggle from addiction and make some suggestions. Dr. E, welcome to High Truths. Good to be with you. Hi. And I really, really appreciate you telling your journey and the story, which is a painful one, um, but that brought you to be an advocate and a real asset and for other parents who who struggle uh, like you have. And so can you start with telling us about your son's journey with addiction? How did it start? Um, and your your relationship and, and, and issues as a parent. It's kind of odd. <clears throat> My whole background goes well back into the 70s when I, in fact, smoked pot for a while. And I kept noticing friends getting into trouble or having academic trouble. And finally, I was headed to medicine and decided I needed to quit. Uh, <clears throat> so oddly enough, then I got involved with some parent groups and I had more and more involvement with marijuana and actually spent 10 years running an addiction treatment facility and progressed in my medical practice uh, doing pain management and addiction medicine and becoming uh, a speaker nationally, in fact, on on particularly marijuana because I saw so many people falling prey to it, having difficulties with it, uh, addiction, not only to the marijuana, but to other drugs via marijuana. So part of the irony of this is I had at least 30 years 
of involvement uh, with addiction work and working on the whole marijuana issue until one of my uh, family members <clears throat> got very depressed. And in that time was told by peers, if you smoke pot, you'll feel better. And he did. And <clears throat> within a few weeks, it actually launched him into a severe mental health crisis with full-blown mania. And uh, then there was really about uh, three to five years of up and down and hospitalizations and uh, treatment and a really, really tough time of it. And uh, how, how old was he when he started? Oh, gosh, he would have been about, uh, oh, early 20s, roughly. And, and that's kind of funny because a lot of the people that I worked with in addiction started either drinking or smoking pot well into their early teens, you know, 13, 12, mm -hmm. 13, 14, along in there. And that apparently had never been an issue with him. So this was really happening uh, in his early 20s, which is surprising. And uh, it, that's that college opened, age. Yes. Yeah, well, it was actually during college. Mm -hmm. And then that really opened my eyes to th this whole new marijuana that we were dealing with that was so powerful, so much different than the stuff that was on the streets in the 70s and 80s. And uh, really opened my eyes professionally to folks that were having full blown psychotic episodes worsening depression, worsening suicidal behavior, worsening drug addiction. So it opened my eyes both personally and professionally, in fact. So the, the marijuana you used when you were a kid is not at all the same as the marijuana that your son did. That's absolutely true. It was the old ditch weed. And if you look back at DEA records that were available, it was probably somewhere between about one and a half and maybe 3% THC. And that was considered, you know, powerful stuff. And today, as we all know, uh, most of the stuff on the streets, anywhere from eight to 10%, 12%, 15%. And, you know, some of the variants are tremendous, 30% uh, vaped forms or the oils, uh, 70 to 90% THC. So this is like a a whole different grade of this stuff that's out there. When did you as a father find out that, that this was a problem for your son? I had no idea at first that he was having any difficulties. And I started getting phone calls, um, you know, from like a bars or people like that, you know, like, hey, your kid's doing crazy stuff uh, and you need to, you know, come and intervene on this or we're calling the police. And, and actually uh, that prompted some of the early interventions. And the problem was, even when we intervened, even when he got psychiatric care, you know, when you'd get out and get involved with the good old buddies again who were smoking pot, boom, he'd be right back at it again with, uh, with uh, psychotic behavior. Just took very little time to relapse. You know, using drugs fills a certain void, as you say. Do you feel your son was addicted to the marijuana? You know, I've wondered that, and that's a great question. It's, I think probably at some point, uh, the, the, oh, the, the compulsion to use was clearly there. 
the driver of got to go with my friends, got to be in a certain environment. And if I'm in that environment, you know, they're all smoking pot and et cetera. So uh, I think, oddly enough, um, yes, I think there was a clear addiction side of that. And the tough part that I always found working with addicts was getting them to recognize that they had to themselves recognize their own powerlessness, that the addiction mm -hmm. had hold of them. And the only way then you right. can, can give up, can, can really get control, ironically, is to step back and say, you know, I need to place my control in, in other people's hands. And everybody has a different way of doing that, but that's the whole AANA model. And the harder you fight sometimes, the more you lose. You know, outside of a person, we see that in medicine is not necessarily what the person feels or, or knows. But just listening to your brief story, I feel like he meets the DSM uh, five criteria for cannabis use disorder, right? A big one is, you right. know, you're, you're you're calling the police and you're still using even after that intervention is going bad to, um, um, you know, dangerous uh, behavior and use even after something big like that happens. Um, did, did he progress to using other drugs? To the best of my knowledge, uh, there was some use of other drugs, no, no injectables, uh, some hallucinogens, um, probably alcohol here and there. And it's really hard to know for sure what absolutely came first. You know, being late in college, I suspect there's a fair amount of alcohol in there. But I never sensed that that was really a problem as much as with the marijuana. And addiction is is a family disease. I mean, it it affects the person, but... I'm sure it affected you as a father. And I don't know if you mind sharing, did it affect your marriage or other children and how they, that, that, you know, just, it's really hard on the entire family. Well, it really is. I think, you know, because I knew so much about addiction, I worked really hard to foster the family support piece of it and, and to work as a team rather than start pointing fingers, well, if you hadn't done this, and if you hadn't done that. And, I mean, that's, that's where the real trip is, is when you start trying to find fault and blame. And I think that's something we did a good job of not doing. Well, if you hadn't mm -hmm. been so tough, or if you hadn't been so weak, or I did also really step back and try to look at my lineage. Uh, there were some, you know, folks in the family that had had alcohol problems, um, not huge, but you know, no one that I could find a history of uh, really got into significant drug use, but there were a few. And now here we are 30 years after you know, I was involved and now I can look back and there are multiple folks, particularly in my son's age group in the family that have been involved uh, and uh, probably addicted or at least harmfully involved uh, cannabis use disorder with marijuana. And, and you start to unearth some of that stuff and you go, oh my gosh, never realized this, but uh, extended family members and that kind of thing. I really like what you said as far as your approaches instead of blaming, and it's very 
normal when something horrible happens um, to say, well, why don't we do this or we should have done that or, you know, and, and, and really look back and blame. But the, the fact that you said you took it as a family team approach, I think that's very healthy. And um, I think you can't help it because you're a physician that you have to go back and think of the genetics because we know that there's a strong genetic component with addiction. And so you looked at your own genes and said, hmm, I wonder who in my family uh, has addiction and and did 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 you have a tendency when you used marijuana? Um, and then you didn't get in trouble as much because you were really using a genetically different plant than, than your son. Well, I think another piece of the whole discussion in his world was where did the bipolar behavior come from? And that also kind of forced me to step back and look at, you know, there's a strong genetic connection to bipolar illness and, and I realized, yeah, there were actually several family members upstream from me that had clear bipolar illness in hindsight. At the time, eh, I probably didn't even recognize it, but uh, certainly it was unleashed in, in his circumstance. And well, now looking back, it's thinking the, the chicken or the egg, is it the bipolar or is it the cannabis or we know that cannabis can cause um, psychosis and, and schizophrenia. Um, um, do you still look back and kind of wonder, or do you, you now have a better setting, or do you feel like it doesn't matter? Well, it doesn't matter considering where we are, but at the time it mattered. And I do think in hindsight, there was probably some very, very early bipolar behavior, even well preceding marijuana, and some depression that we didn't know about. And I think had we been alert to that, had we known that, that might have been even more of an opportunity to say, hey, we know this is going on in our family lineage that puts you at risk for X, Y, Z. So drug abuse, et cetera. If you had diabetes and we have diabetes in, in that family lineage, you know, we would, we're more careful to say, realize you have a family lineage for diabetes. And, and it takes maybe a little of a sense of guilt or blame out of it. Had we known, I probably would have individualized more with him and said, look, here are some things that put you at extreme risk. Please let us know if you feel depressed, et cetera. But I don't know that it would have impacted it really. I think the peer influence yeah, was far more important. And the other part of your life that, that I wonder if was affected is your profession. You're a physician and it's, there is stigma on, on, on having a child with addiction. I mean, it's easier to say, Oh, my child has asthma. My child has diabetes. My child even has depression, but to say that my child has a, a drug use or even you, you may not even want your colleagues or anybody to know that. I think that that is, has even more stigma than anything else. And I don't know if you felt that professionally. Or even socially with friends. It's an interesting question. And actually, my wife and I consciously put it out there. We, we figured if we open it up to our friends and to the people around us, then we create a bigger support team. And if you see wow. weird behavior going on, please let us know, because then we're more likely to be able to get ahead of it and intervene on it. And uh, so we were maybe, if anything, excessively 
uh, out there letting you know people know what to look for. And we would get phone calls. Hey, did you know so-and-so was going on? Or, wow, we saw some very strange behavior. Maybe you'd want to look into this. And, uh, or I heard so-and-so was... What are some of the... Well, the some of those get a little specific. That made your point, heart sink. <laughs> uh, well, you know, like getting a call from a police officer that I knew. Hey, mm. you know, your son has done so-and-so. And, or, hey, your family member has been arrested. Or you need to come mm. right now because we've got a, a, a life-threatening situation going on. I mean, those kind of things just make your blood run cold. Um, and, and that went on a lot. The other thing, and I kind of think I'm already hearing the answer is going to, is it easier or harder for you to, to deal with this situation with your son as a physician? And I'm already hearing so many things differently that I don't know. Many people know one, as you said, you deal with it as a team approach, as a family. And the other one, instead of hiding and being embarrassed, by a problem, you were open about it and asked for friends in community for support. I'm wondering right. if there's any other things as a physician that you you knew to 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 do when you had this this issue. Well, I think one of the one of the things which is very difficult to bring families to is the point where you throw in the towel, where you say, "Look, you've beaten us. We have failed to be able to get control." Still very That's difficult. a hard line. Yeah, you don't know when, and yet people teach you in addiction that there's a a line where where parents are told to do that. Right? It's like okay, this is now out of your hands. You need to. I do think whatever, kick a, your son I, out of the house or whatever. It is very hard. I think there's a failing in the sense in addiction treatment that maybe we do some of that too early, but I also think there's a point where you come to that you say, look, you, you, we have not been able to help you and you're destroying our world. You're destroying our lives. And if you're continuing in this, literally uh, you just have to go. And uh, you know, at that point, I mean, that's a, that's a very, difficult discussion with most families. And I think, yeah, when- I, I, I don't know what the right line is and set of maybe getting outside professional help at what, at what point do you need to, to say, okay, I've done everything that I can. And I think at, at what will- point are you enabling a problem versus uh, giving tough love? And, you know, and that's to know right. where that line is. And I do think, you know, some of the the classic dictum is immediately sort of let go and push back and, you know, but I, I think that's a mistake. I do think supporting early, being involved, not enabling, you don't want to, you know, oh, here's some more money or, oh, you know, that's that's a mistake. But by the same token, if you just walk away from the first, uh, I think that's where you really start looking at suicide risk. and and really truly losing, uh, there is a threshold where you're you're in too deep and too enabling versus just supporting. And I think that's a very tough thing for parents to recognize. 
Yeah, I, I think that's good advice too, is at the beginning, this is new, you know, people first, second, third, fourth, I don't know how many chances. Um, uh, and and then maybe get help to make, you know, to make sure that you're right decision because that's that is very very hard um and you have this 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 journey that i'm sure have changed you as a a person as a father and as a doctor but as as a doctor who's who knows about medicine and addiction what have you learned well i think the first thing is none of us are spared from this there's nobody that's safe Mm -mm. (laughs) Uh, i think we live in a culture and a world now where drug abuse of all kinds has been so normalized and so accepted. I mean, I I would say to anybody having young kids, be alert, be aware, because it's more the norm to find kids getting in trouble with drugs than it is to have somebody really choose to stay clean all the way through college and become productive, et cetera. And when you have these legalization movements that are just preying on kids and hoping the That's young terrible. people spend their lives buying pot and you know being stoners and and supporting this huge uh, drug culture. Uh, you know these are profiteers. These these folks are absolutely no better than the tobacco industry. You know profiteering off of the suffering, mostly of young people, but certainly older people as well. And and we're playing into that. And I, that's one thing I'm just frankly angry about is, is the, the big pot, the, the folks that are a lot, just like the tobacco industry out there watching a generation be destroyed and making money off of it. I, I, I do think that we're the David and Goliath and the Goliath is the the marijuana industry who's out to make a profit, a billion dollar industry. And we are, you know, uh, small, but strong and professional voices who are, who are out for the health of people. Cause you know, that we, we want people to be, we want to prevent problems. That's the ultimate way of, um, of, of helping people. But at the end of the day, as um, Kevin Sabet has said in the past is, is uh, we'll be on the right side of history. And it's a matter of will it will it take a hundred years like it did for tobacco, or can we, by learning from the mistakes of the past and speaking up, will it take fifty years for people instead of a hundred for people to end that? You know, it's an interesting um, thing too. We we had we went after tobacco so hard when Kessler actually made the move to say. Oh, tobacco is a delivery system for nicotine. Therefore, it's FDA regulated. Therefore, let's go after this. And it it also turned when the public began to realize how badly abused uh, we had been and how taken advantage of. Now we're still seeing a heck of a lot of people die from tobacco, but I think there will come a time where the marijuana industry will be exposed and people are going to say, Wow, they're doing the same thing that the tobacco industry did. But with tobacco today, and if I, this is you know my common little line, is that people are informed decision makers. If you pick up a cigarette, you know it's addicting, you know it's bad for your health, you know you can get emphysema or cancer. And if you're going to smoke, then go do it someplace where you know we don't not exposed to secondhand smoke. But with marijuana, we're still at the beginning of that. 
history where people are just told, you know, it cures cancer, it's good for seizures, it's good for all these things, a lot of false and fake um, health claims. Um, and people are not informed decision makers. And that's, I think that's what um, the, you know, the select uh, leaders in medicine need to be educating. Right, right. And so what do you say to people who come and tell you, well, it's just marijuana. I mean, you used it as a kid. It's just marijuana. Well, <clears throat> I have a real long speech that I go through. <laughs> when I look back, that just marijuana, you know, one of the reasons I quit was I kept seeing people having trouble around me. Uh, people who were very bright having academic failure, some close friends having bad trips and, you know, psychotic episodes, uh, some people never quitting. In fact, when I ran the chemical dependence work, several of my old high school classmates became patients of mine going through treatment uh, 20 years later, uh, you know, addicted, terribly addicted to pot. So yeah, it wasn't such a simple drug then and now it's even worse. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a gateway, and, and I, I like to tell people that uh, that as far as the prevention message, um, you are four to six times more likely to get addicted while your brain is growing, and that's under twenty-five. So even though your son started at twenty, and he right. thinks of himself as an adult, and he's in college, he's very vulnerable. Kids in college are very vulnerable; their brain is still growing. It's a very vulnerable time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of ironic when you think about it that most of the alcohol laws, you know, say 21, well, you know, their their brains are still developing them and age of initiation is typically mm -hmm. what, 12 to 14. So, you know, that almost assures addiction or at least uh, difficult behaviors and destructive behaviors if they start at those ages. Yep. And, and you're right. That, that age 21, it's a legal age. It's not a science age. The right. science age would be 25, 27 if we wanted a scientific age, but this is just a, le a legal age. Um, and do you have advice for our father um, who, who called and wanted to know suggestions uh, as a parent who, who's had a, really a lifetime struggle like you um, uh, with his son? You know, I think one of the biggest ones is <clears throat> is keep communication going. Uh, it's very difficult to get angry, or it's easy to get angry. It, it creates a difficult situation. I think if you totally cut off communication, then you really don't have a, a place to, to fall back to. So I think communication's one. I think consistency is another, because if you have one family member that says, oh, it's just pot, and somebody else says, oh, no, it's a problem, and somebody else says, well, yeah, but they can't be part of the family, and somebody else says, oh, no, we want them part of the family. I mean, you really have to get the family dynamics sorted out uh, and keep some element of communication going. I think the other part is don't fall into the blame game because, you know, there may be blame. Maybe somebody sat down and smoked pot with their kid, which I think is dangerous and, and unwise. But in the end, you really got to get down to there is a medical problem going on. You know, there's a medical phenomenon of addiction. And how can that person get social supports and medical supports that will help that addiction move away? Uh, 
I personally think that marijuana addiction is one of the most difficult addictions to treat. I, I'd rather deal uh, with a patient that's heroin addicted than marijuana addicted. And I think part of that reason is marijuana's effect is such a lulling, such a, you know, the soporific effect, the, the soothing kind of sedating that it's very tricky and seductive. Whereas a heroin addiction, I mean, those folks know they're addicted. They won't argue with you, but they'll put a needle back in their mm -hmm. arm because it's, it's such a horrible addiction. So I think trying to, to highlight, hey, there's more of a denial with marijuana. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it starts early. Mm -hmm. But again, you can't fall into the blame game. Helping point out, you realize that, you know, you've been in treatment three or four times and it's not getting better. But where or how can you intervene on this? And, and let's, let's look at the decision-making that's going on. And, you know, there's another part of this. There are some people who never get better. They will always be addicted until they die. And that's one of the things I used to tell the addicts is I said, you know, once you come to me, once the decision has been made that you are an addict, you have three choices. One is sobriety. The other is keep using your drugs until you die from a complication of that, or three, suicide. And that's the only uh. things that are going to go, that, that's the only pathways that are open to you. And, and there's no such a thing as being sort of a little bit addicted. You know, it's like that little bit pregnant. So if you don't get control of it and get into recovery, you're either going to pass away because you've had a side effect of a drug overdose or a cirrhosis or whatever, or suicide. And if you step back and look at the whole, the whole arena of addiction, I've, I've seen that proven out literally thousands of times. Wow, that's um, uh, pretty intense. But I, I do really, I, I think your words of advice for for parents are something to cherish. And I just want to sum it up because I think it was so good is number one, communication. Number two, consistency in the message with the, the family to be on the same page. Number three is not to use the blame game. And number four is to understand the disease of addiction as a medical condition. I think that's that's amazing advice and 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 even something that you just pointed out just now that I haven't been thinking about as much is the denial that uh cannabis can cause is is more than 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 other drugs. And I'm wondering if it's because of the drug itself or it's because of the society push that hey it's just marijuana and so you know how could you you know, the, if that causes a denial or if the drug itself causes a denial. Because I, I, I see that definitely repeatedly in the emergency department. This is your fifth visit to the ER. And we've told you each time that the, the marijuana is causing you to uh, throw up and have abdominal pain. And yet you're still doing it. And uh, right. it's uh, that's de that's denial, but it's also addiction. And I'm wondering if that's why if it's the actual chemical in marijuana or if it's the society that says, Hey, well, you know, everyone's doing it. Why are you, you know, I think a, a lot of it has to do with the metabolism because you know, that whole marijuana met metabolic cycle is so long half-life, you know, anywhere from a couple days to a week, you don't tend to get a lot of the things that bring a heroin addict to treatment, which is 
overdoses or severe withdrawal. And, and so many like alcohol, all of those drugs tend to have relatively short or very short half-lives. So they feel terrible when they don't have it. And with pot, they just kind of, they're just kind of stoned. I mean, it's, it goes, it goes on for hours and days and, you know, a half-life of three to seven days, they don't feel that withdrawal, but they will. And you can induce withdrawal with it too. And they'll feel that. So. Yeah. And, and I've seen that, you know, especially early on in the pandemic, I've seen people who are very anxious and you're thinking that, oh, they're crawling out of their skin because of, because there's a global pandemic. But when I get a drug history, it's because they cut back and they're actually withdrawing from it and it feels like anxiety. Right. Um, so we have to ha- end on a happy note. How's your son doing? How's the family doing? Well, I think generally very well. Uh, I, I think there are brief episodes where he may relapse some, but seems to be quick at kind of getting it back together and, and launching on. Um, had fairly long episodes of sobriety and productivity, and uh, that's good. But I think we also recognize it's a relapsing disease. It's like telling a diabetic, oh, my God, you relapsed again. Well, no, wait a minute. You've had a relapse of your blood sugar and that, oh, guess what? You ate half a pound of ice cream yesterday. And then stepping back and saying, okay, what led to this? How'd you get into it? How'd you get out of it? What decisions can you make that'll help this not happen again? And and I think, unfortunately, all of us tend to let down our guard for any illness that we have. You know, diabetes would be a good example. But again, letting down your guard, getting together with buddies, playing with the old playmates, and somebody lights up a joint. And I think that, or, you know, they break out their their kit and start shooting up heroin or snorting cocaine. I mean, those are relapsing behaviors. And if you fall Mm -hmm. into the same group and continue to hang with the same group, you will have relapses. So changing the playmates, I think, is critical. Right. Identifying what personal triggers are and knowing, hey, this is what triggered me to use. And then knowing to those are the triggers I need to to avoid using in the future. I don't know if you want to talk about what it's like to be a, a leader um, who speaks against cannabis. And I don't know if you want to go into that. Well, it's been interesting because I, I think th- the story that people have threatened your life for for telling the truth. I used to be very publicly, TV-wise, you know, media-wise, very, very visible and involved. And I, I to this day, keep a file of death threats. Uh, and, you know, you tend to think of cannabis users as these, you know, sweet folks that sit in the corner and get stoned and listen to music. And that is just not the case. Um, many get very violent. Many get very aggressive. In fact, I'm extremely uh, concerned that some of these national uh, outbursts of violence have been because of folks that were stoned or on, on marijuana or had marijuana as a big part of their function, especially the teenage or early 20s males, you know, the number one drug that they would be potentially using. Uh, so that's been a big concern of mine. Um, and I literally had a guy come up to me in a parking lot once and said, I can't wait to see your face when they 
execute the hit that you put out that I put out on you. And I was like, what? Uh. He says, yeah, you need to quit doing all this marijuana stuff. Uh, in our legislature, I've worked rigorously against some of the marijuana legislation and uh, caught a lot of flack for that, um, you know, because I'm the guy that kind of holds a lot of that back. So yeah, it's not very simple. And there's a lot of people profiteering from it. Uh, there's a lot of people that are taking advantage of susceptible folks. And I really hate to see that. And if we have our way, uh, in the in the end, we will prevail, I hope. Or at least people will become informed. But um, yeah, th those threats are, I, I can't, I, I can't imagine. I mean, that with the issues of addiction, and you're just trying to help. Um, you're out there trying to help your patients and and help your community. Um, I've had a little bit of that when I talk about opioids. People are, oh, thank you, thank you, Doctor Love, for what you do. You know, so much appreciated. Bless you. And if I say something about marijuana, I'll have she needs to be fired. China, right. like it's the same. They're connected. The, you know, the diseases of con addiction are, are, are connected. It's one drug or the other and, 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 um, and stuff. So I, I appreciate, I, I don't think anybody should get death threats. Um, I agree with you that, that marijuana can be a violent drug and we've seen violent outbursts from people whose drug screen are negative for everything. Um, you'd think they'd right. be on PCP or bath salts and it ends up being just cannabis. I definitely ha have seen that. Um, so I really, really thank you. Um, I want to thank our anonymous father for his question and I want to bless him and his family with health. And I know that although he says he's retired, he's very much involved in the issue of addiction and contributing tremendously to the awareness and, and solutions in his community. And um, to you, Dr. E, thank you for joining High Truths and sharing your stories and being an advocate and having a, a medical perspective to to the issue and really applaud you for continuing um, and not not giving up despite um, adversity that that you have faced. Well, I appreciate that, and Dr. Lev is a wonderful uh, colleague, and I think the pathway that we're on um, has made me more uh, optimistic about turning the tides on this uh, than I have been for a long time. So. Great. So I, what I'd like to do is share this podcast with our anonymous father and listener. And after that, connect the two of you and be a real matchmaker. Oh, sure. Happy to. I'm connected to mm -hmm. a lot of folks in recovery and parents with uh, families in recovery. I, I, I enjoy that uh, interaction. Yeah, and it, and it puts perspective that you know how addiction is a family a family disease. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. 
Visit our website, hightruths.com to submit a question, take a quiz or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.